On this week's 51%, hear about the life of a former college president. She changed many things about Manhattanville, a liberal arts college in the suburbs of New York City. Manhattanville had this reputation of being this elite school for Catholic women. It was where several Kennedy women went. That was kind of its reputation. By the time she leaves in 1974, it is now seen as this very radical, almost, educational college. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. In late 2020, a former president of Manhattanville College in Westchester County, New York, died. The college's archivist, Lauren Ziarko, dove into a trove of material about the unorthodox former college president's life and legacy. Ziarko says former Manhattanville president Elizabeth McCormick's nearly century-long life reflected societal changes. They reflect changes to the Catholic Church and their religious orders. They reflect changes to um, higher education, to the lives of women over the course of the 20th century. So I think her life is just, while an extraordinary one, it's a really interesting microcosm of the United States. Um, And so I think her her life story as being a, an alum of Manhattanville and then guiding it through definitely its most tumultuous years. She made a lot of the hard decisions, but they were necessary at the time to make the school last. Um, and she was willing to do that. She didn't shy away from change. One of my favorite quotes by her is from, uh, she was speaking to the students at Manhattanville in 1973 at Convocation, which is the event that kind of launches the academic year. Um, and so it was September. And she says, Find values you can live by, yet never fear to question them. Um, And at this point, we know from her biography that she is already doubting um, her own religious beliefs. She's doubting her life in a religious order. And I think that that's really, you know, interesting that she is um, reflecting that back to the students, that it's okay to change. Um, It's important to have have beliefs, but that if they alter over time, um, that just means that, you know, you're moving along with time. McCormick was president of Purchase-based Manhattanville College from 1966 to 1974 and a nun for 30 years before being released from her vows in 1974. She left the order um, after she had already resigned as president. Um, So the chronology is that she she attended Manhattanville in, she graduated in 1944. She attended during the war. She entered the order right after college. And she never doubted it. For 23 years, she was all in. Um, and believed that she was being called by God and really enjoyed a lot of the aspects of it. She enjoyed the communal living. The women of the Sacred Heart, the order, um, the Society of the Sacred Heart, was the Catholic religious order that was devoted to education of women. And it was known to be the most academically rigorous. And she was able to get a master's degree, get a Ph.D. in a time that that was very unusual. The women of the Sacred Heart order were among the most educated in the world at the time. And she came back to Manhattanville after years of teaching in other academies in 1958. So she graduated in 1944. She comes back in 1958 to serve as the assistant to the president. And it was clear that the Society of the Sacred Heart was uh, grooming her for great leadership, um, that even at this time it was, it was a, clear that she was a, a person who could lead people, people liked very much. Um, and so she was being, I believe, groomed to be the, the next president of the college and to succeed Mother O'Byrne, who was the president. So in 1958, she comes on, she eventually becomes a dean, and then in 1966, she takes over as president. But it is very clear from her inauguration speech that change is going to occur. Um, At this point, Manhattanville is a Catholic college, but 
It is not owned by the Catholic Church. It doesn't receive any funds from the Catholic Church. It is only it is owned and, and operated by its board of trustees, and that was true since it was incorporated as a college in 1917. And in 1917, the board of trustees was mostly members of the religious order um, and priests. But by the time it comes to 1966, um, it is now business owners and other lay people make up the majority of the board of trustees. So in no way did she have to sever any ties because there never were to begin with. It was a cultural Catholicism. And so the first change that they make um, in 1966 is they drop, the name of the college had been Manhattanville College of the Sacred Heart. And they drop the of the Sacred Heart because um, it's possessive, you know, and it doesn't actually belong to the Sacred Heart. So they drop those words. And they also begin to remove the religious imagery from the campus. So there were crucifixes in the classrooms, and they remove those. Um, and there starts to be an uproar from the alums who are saying, this isn't the college that I went to. And she says, at one point, this is the quote I really love, she says, the college is very important to them, and therefore it worries them that today's student isn't finding the same thing as they did. Of course, today's student may not be looking for the same thing. So she says that, that no college can be a closed institution, can't be static, it has to keep changing. Um, and so this is a, a quote from her uh, inaugural address, which is in December of 1966. She says, because the college is committed to inquiry, students and faculties together dare to question. Ours is an age of wide and rapid change, an age of crisis and danger, an age of hard questions. And more and more, our colleges are the place where deep questions are asked, the questions that will not go away. Students want to know about the past and the future, about their inheritance and their responsibility, about the meaning of meaning. They do not come to the liberal arts college for answers. They come rather to learn to ask the right questions. So already she is identifying that um, this is not a school where we are going to uh, proselytize or preach what people can believe. We believe in um, ambiguity, in multiple viewpoints, and that was very true for her. And so she says in it that, you know, change we must, and that these are, are changes that are going to occur because we have to stay with the times. Um, and so that was very shocking for a lot of the people who were listening. So this is now in 1973. We're, we're racing forward a little bit. And so by this point, they've changed the name of the school. They've removed the religious um, iconography from the classrooms and various parts of campus, even though there still are statues around campus and artwork and things like that. But they're very much stripping it away because at the same time the college is changing, a lot of this is mirroring what's going on in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has Vatican II take place. And to Catholic religious orders, the change is massive. The nuns are no longer wearing habits. So they, in 1969, stopped wearing their habits. They now are wearing normal clothes. Um, the composition of the faculty has changed as well. She was much more um, willing to hire. And I will say that Manhattanville always was, was diverse in its faculty. Looking back, you know, all the way to the 1930s and 40s, yes, there were nuns as faculty, but there were also lay people and Protestants and Jews and people from all over the world. And that was kind of a, a part of Manhattanville that Elizabeth as a student really loved. And I think that that helped create her, her view of the world, of this kind of diversity of education. Um, she says once that the more viewpoints on truth that a student receives, the better it is. You know, that there are multiple views in the world and we have to show them to, you know, students have to see all of them to understand. And so by 1973, they've also gone co-educational. 
But so she's talking about change, and she says, our concern for change is not for its own sake. Change we must. I am not troubled when our endeavors are characterized as being revolutionary or radical. If they are, so be it. My great fear is that they are not radical enough. I have no interest in retrenchment and the preservation of the past because it was so good to me, and it was. I will have not been true to Manhattanville College if, when I leave this institution, it is the same institution to which I came, save for a little tinkering here and a little there. She's very open in that why these changes had to happen. You're talking the late 1960s, early 1970s. She speaks frequently at the time and then in later years that Manhattanville had this this kind of automatic constituency who applied to the college in the 1920s through the 1960s. And it was Catholic middle and upper middle class girls from the Northeast. Elizabeth herself wasn't allowed to apply to a non-Catholic college. She only applied to Manhattanville. And that's normal when I've spoken to alumni. It wouldn't have been um, seen as appropriate by their parents for them to go to a Wellesley or a Barnard or something. They really were supposed to go to a Catholic college. So you have this automatic pool of applicants that are consistently applying to Manhattanville every single year. But as the 1960s stretches on, this starts to change. More and more colleges are going co-ed, so there's more options for girls. Um, and then there's not the same seeming requirement that Catholics have to go to Catholic colleges. So they can now apply to a wide variety. You have the SUNY system is growing at this point. Purchase, SUNY purchases buildings, campus right down the road. So this automatic pool of applicants that Manhattanville could always rely on for applying and going to Manhattanville is, is disappearing. And so they knew that if they didn't diversify the college to attract more students, that the college would not survive. And that is what happened to a number of Sacred Heart colleges at the time. And so the changes, again, to reiterate, she, you know, took away a lot of the Catholic images and symbolism around campus. Right. Didn't, didn't, I'm sorry, Lauren. Didn't I read that she uh, actually buried the crucifixes? They're on college grounds right now. And she did that on a good yes. Friday, right? Yes, yes. So they, the story goes, and I don't have documentation of this for obvious reasons. They didn't deposit this into the archives. But she said later in her biography um, that she asked two of the younger nuns who worked for the college at the time to go through the classrooms at night and remove the crucifixes. It would have been to do it during normal business hours would have been painful for people to see. And so they went through and removed the crucifixes, but didn't know what to do with them. Um, they didn't want to just throw them out. And so they spoke to a priest who actually recommended that they bury them, that that was the best thing to do. Um, and so they are buried somewhere on our campus um, near the athletic field. Interestingly, we have a cemetery on campus featuring with over 100 of the religious being buried there over the years, and they did not do it in the cemetery. So there must have been some ecclesiastical reason that the priest did not want them put in the, in the cemetery. But yes, they, they were removed um, and then buried on campus. And I think that if the alums had known about that, that would have created even more of an uproar that was kept somewhat quiet at the time. But it was it was definitely in her obituary and in her biography, so it is it is now open. But I do kind of dread the day that they're going to say, Lauren, go dig those up. <laughs> I'm going to be like, please no. I'm sorry if you want to return to your to what you were saying earlier, but I do want to hear about her kind of her her legacy or her or what she did for women. I mean, when you're going through a point of all women to being more inclusive, what does this do to the women who are going through that? You know, the women who are there when that change is being made, and and the women who come thereafter. Right, um, and I think that her belief, and that was a lot of the reason that people believed in women's colleges, was the idea that um, men would stifle 
their ability to speak up in the classroom um, and to kind of display how intelligent they were. And so this was definitely shifting away from that belief. She believed that if the goal of a college is to teach students how to think and operate in the real world, you have to reflect the real world. And the real world features both men and women in it. And it also was just, again, coming down to the the fact that as other colleges, so many colleges, Vassar among them, was uh, were going co-ed, that it was just keeping with the times. And the, the change went relatively smoothly. The students, um, female students, were all pleased with it. They, they did do a survey within a couple of years to see how it was going. And it was actually the faculty who were saying that male students did speak up a little bit more in class, which I think we know is still true today. And the other change that she did for the college was introduced kind of a very interesting system that we still uh, have today at Manhattanville in, in certain aspects, which was the portfolio system. They undertook, after she has gone, they've moved the college co-ed, they've moved it away from its Catholic background, they undertake this massive curriculum study that was um, funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. And she... Um, oversees this, and they basically add, they have a bunch of intensive interviews asking students and faculty, what do you want from college? Is there anything that we're missing out on? And a lot of people were saying, you know, just graduating with a transcript doesn't really cut it. It doesn't really show what, what I went through over the course of the four years, how I progressed. And so they create this idea of a portfolio system where, in addition to a transcript, a student is creating a portfolio showing their development as a student, as a thinker, over the course of their four years. They temporarily um, did not, they stopped doing letter grades and it was actually the students who asked for them to be, um, to be reinstated. But she was, you know, moved Manhattanville from being kind of before in the 1960s, before she took over, Manhattanville had this reputation of being this elite school for Catholic women. It was where several Kennedy women went. That was kind of its reputation. By the time she leaves in 1974, it is now seen as this very radical, almost, educational college, willing to take steps to keep pace and and make changes. Okay, let's get back to this budding romance with the chief financial officer. Yes. So in 1969, um, the college is looking for a new chief financial officer, and they hire this man named uh, Jerry Aaron, who was, um, had spent, he was doing actually a career change. He had spent his whole career up to that point, working for his father-in-law's garment business. Um, he had gotten a law degree and then ended up working in the garment industry um, for 22 years. And for whatever reason, he decides to change course, um, sees this listing for a CFO in Manhattanville, and applies to it. Um, and he would later say that from the first moment he, he saw Elizabeth, he knew that they were going to have a history together, that there, that there was a spark there. Um, but he was married with five children at the time, and she was a Catholic nun. Um, and so they start working together, and they get close very, very quickly. So he, I believe he started in October of 1969. In December of 1969, there was a building takeover by um, African-American students who were on campus at the time. Between 1968, 69, 70, there were hundreds of these building takeovers by black college students who were demanding more representation on campus. Um, and that meant more black faculty members, uh, more courses that focused on African-American history, African studies, and then also providing more scholarships and financial aid to allow students to, from more diverse backgrounds to attend college. 
And so there were a lot of high-profile ones, Cornell University, um, CUNY had one, San Francisco State had one that lasted months. And most of these ended very violently um, with the police rushing the building, pulling the students out, the students then being expelled. Um, in the case of San Francisco State, some people actually went to jail for a period of months just for protesting peacefully in these college buildings. And so in December, 18 black students at Manhattanville take over our academic building, which is called Brownson Hall. And so this is called the Brownson Takeover. And what was different is that President McCormick, from the beginning, issues a statement that nobody is to call the police, that they are aware that when you bring police onto campus, it can um, entrench people's views, and it can often lead to an escalation of violence. And so she herself acted as a mediator um, and actually climbed through the window of this building on two different occasions to meet with the students. And she... um, Never promised. They had, they had a list of demands, which is they wanted a stipend for black students. They wanted um, a number of faculty members to be hired. And she was very frank with them and said, look, it's a financial issue right now. We, we understand. We agree with you. We see the issues. Uh, we believe in, in these changes, but we can't do them all because just financially we don't have it. And so the students met with her on a number of times. They stayed for a week in the building. And then they left peacefully on their own accord. The students never um, faced any sanctions for their actions. And years later, she was actually still very close with some of these women decades later. Um, she really, I think, found a kindred spirit in a lot of them of this kind of willingness to um, advocate. And, um, and she fully b- believed and agreed with what they were saying, which is that uh, we have to do better, that the, um, the campus life was not representative um, that there were still racist sentiments these students had to face as college students, um, and that the curriculum had to be more diversified in the student body as well. So ultimately, it was just a different way of handling kind of this crisis. And Jerry, Aaron, was with her. Um, and they actually kind of the two of them faced it as a team and really got very close over the course of that. Um, and later in her biography, she noted that what might have taken five years for them to get a closeness, you know, within a few weeks, they really knew each other very well. And so for the next few years, they get very, very close. Um, they always maintained, they never, nothing inappropriate ever happened between them. Um, they were just very, very dear friends and kindred spirits the entire time that, that she worked at Manhattan and that he did as well. He eventually gets a divorce from his wife. Her biography actually has a letter from, from Jerry in it to his children that he's, he's writing. Letter to children. I love an index. All right, so he says in, in this letter to his children, um, this is in 1973. So they, they meet in 1969. They work together for four years, become very, very close. And finally, in 1973, he decides to leave his wife. Um, and he says, enter Manhattanville College, a new and beautiful life, an environment in which I sense a mission, fulfillment where I am respected and looked to for leadership, and the formations of important decisions void of bitter memories. Enter Elizabeth McCormick, delightful, charming, witty, a razor-sharp mind with a value system and set of objectives which parallel mine. We think alike. We can communicate in silence. I can be driving with her in a car, and after a period of long silence, she will say, isn't it interesting how happy I can be with you even when we say nothing? She trusts me, and I trust her. At some point, I find I love her, and when she leaves the order, she tells me that she loves me. She does. 
Query, did I leave mom for Elizabeth? Answer, no. Query, did I leave mom because of Elizabeth? Answer, undoubtedly yes. She was the catalytic agent, the embodiment of the possibility of peace, of freedom, of gentleness, of kindness, of commitment, of love. So in 1973, he leaves his wife. She started the process of leaving the order in 1973 as well. And so she sends a letter to them, um, to the order, asking to to leave her vows. And um, that was in January 1974 is when that formally comes through. So she had resigned. As college president, what she decided to do is in late 1973, um, or it would have been the summer of 1973, she says, I'll work here one more year. That is time for me. Um, She had now been at the school since 1958. It is now 1973. It has been 15 years. She says at one point that as people are bringing her problems or issues, she's thinking to herself, I've done this before. How is this coming back up? And she says, that's the wrong mentality, that it's time for me to move on to the next to the next thing. Um, and so she first resigns as president, but says, I'll stay on for another year. In that year, she then leaves the order. But I think that it all is related and interconnected. I think her meeting Jerry, she had started to doubt her vows and her role in the religious order as early as 1967. She had gone to a meeting in Rome called the General Council, and it was for the Sacred Heart nuns were um, trying to modernize in light of Vatican II. So she was one of 85 nuns out of the several thousand that there were in the world. She was sent to Rome, and she spent a few months there at this meeting, And she was really dismayed by what she saw. She started to really have doubts as to the direction the order was going um, in terms of of changing some of the the day-to-day community living. She actually thought that was a good part. They were trying to modernize. And I think that that seeded some doubt for her. And so she says that it took her six years, between 1967 and 1973, she had doubts, and it took six years for her to finally decide um, that she was, was going to leave. And then in that time, she meets Jerry as well. So I think that it's all interconnected. Um, and then I think that also just with having been at Manhattanville for so many years as well, she's also just seeing it. It's all kind of, you know, a new life is about to start for her. Her leaving the order, I think a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, how sad, you know, oh, she wasted 30 years of her life. And she never felt that way. She truly believed that it was her calling for those 30 years. And then when she left, that that was her calling as well. And she said, I think now in retrospect, I didn't want the life that I would have had had I not become a nun. I actually, from many points of view, had a much fuller life. I had a career. I was educated. I learned leadership. It really gave me an awfully good life. Not many women my age now have had as full a life as I have. After leaving the college, McCormick became a philanthropic advisor to the Rockefellers and foundations. McCormick remained on the college's board until her death in December at age 98. An infant born with a damaged heart has helped break barriers in pediatric cardiac care for patients around the world. And her mother, with roots in a hamlet east of Albany, designed more suitable hospital attire for babies now used across the country. 51%'s Dave Lucas reports. In late 2020, the Georgia Claire Bowen Foundation announced a million-dollar grant to the Boston Children's Hospital Heart Center. The foundation was founded by Kate Bowen, a Naval Park native, Albany Academy of the Holy Names graduate, and children's clothing designer, in honor of her daughter, Georgia Claire Bowen. Georgia, now two years old, 
was born in cardiac arrest. To save her life, doctors moved her from Massachusetts General Hospital, where she was born, to Boston Children's Hospital. Bowen says the physicians there tried something that had never been done before on any human, especially a newborn, after a heart attack. They harvested mitochondrial cells from her muscle and her neck and deployed them down her left coronary artery to try to revive her left ventricle. And that procedure was a little bit too late. We think her heart muscle was not really responding to that. So she then went on an external organ called the Berlin Heart, which is a left ventricular assist device, which was a bridge to heart transplantation. She received a neonatal heart transplant of four months old. Uh, The gift of life, she's now two years post-transplant in the true miracle. Um, With all of that, she also sustained a large stroke while she was on life support uh, to the left side of her brain, which affects the right side of her body. She also had a bloodstream infection, a fungal infection, a left arterial blood clot. every, Every possible complication and obstacle was thrown at her. And she defied all odds. After spending months in the hospital with Georgia and seeing firsthand how ill-fitting hospital gowns for pediatric patients were inconvenient for patients, doctors, and nurses, Bowen founded GCB Medical Supply in May and worked as the pandemic closed in to create the Georgie, a kimono-style pediatric onesie that is MRI and X-ray compatible. It's made to accommodate tubes and machines and is now worn by babies in hospitals across the country. Her business boomed, leading to that million-dollar grant from the new foundation. It launched in September of 2020. We celebrated Georgia's second-year heart transplant. We donated a million dollars to Boston Children's Hospital, to Georgia's uh, cardiologist, uh, Dr. Christina Vanderplum is Georgia's change maker. She has been with us since Georgia was brought to Boston Children's without a pulse. And her cardiothoracic surgeon, Dr. Francis Finn Thompson, together they're going to innovate and bring change to pediatric heart failure. The Georgia Claire Bowen Impact Imagining More Possibilities in Advanced Cardiac Therapies initiative at Boston Children's Hospital supports cutting-edge pediatric cardiac research and care. The enterprise collaborates with pediatric heart networks around the world to pave the way for research and data sharing to improve pediatric cardiac care. Baby Georgia is now at home in Vermont with her parents and three siblings. GCB Medical Supply also provides personal protective equipment to frontline workers who are battling COVID-19. For 51%, I'm Dave Lucas. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1646.